welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a percussionist, band leader, and composer from New Zealand, Menzel Manzaza. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have Magleli with us, right? Did I get that part right? Yeah, Mayele Menzenza. Oh, so I still messed it up. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so Mayele, or, or, or like Mayele, like Ellie way, like it's my up, right, right up Mayele. That's cool too. Whatever, whatever's easiest to kind of remember. Mm-hmm. Well, you're our first guest from New Zealand. Actually, second guest from New Zealand, if I'm correct, but you're our first percussionist from over there. Nice. Thank you, sir, for joining us. Please tell the people about yourself. Let's get into cool. this. Yeah. Well, uh, m- my name is Mayeli Manzanza. I am a drummer, composer, and producer originally from Wellington, New Zealand, now residing in London, UK. Um, I I grew up on a lot of different music. Like my father, Sam Manzanza, he's um, from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. He's a percussionist, um, guitarist, singer, band leader. And um, he moved to New Zealand in the late 80s, just like a little bit before I was born. And um, he was one of the first people to sort of really popularise African music, like high life and Afrobeat in New Zealand. And to, to give you a bit of context, like in the, when he moved in like the late 80s, early 90s, like he would have been the first black person that a lot of people in New Zealand would have seen in the flesh, you know, like there really is not that much of a black or African diaspora out there. But um, he really, he took to it like a fish in water and and kind of became a a bit of a low-key superstar in New Zealand, sort of being like the one African guy playing African music at the time. And so I grew up on a lot of that. Um, my When I was, before going to school, I would often be taken on the road and go on tour and um, I would sit in a lot on these African drum classes that he would teach. Um, And I got into music, I guess, through him via osmosis, I suppose. It was never a sense of like, I was never like told like, Mayala, you must practice right now. You must work on your rudiments and scales and, you know, all of that stuff. It was just sort of a thing that was in, in the house and in our life in the same way that I guess for a lot of people in America, I assume baseball or basketball or NFL is, you know, it's just the thing that's in the culture and in your life there. And music for me was was kind of like that. And um, as well as sort of getting that kind of the African root, I was also, I grew up in the age of hip hop and electronica. And as I was, I, you know, I started, you know, getting really excited about the music of um, Jay Diller when I was maybe... I guess 13 or so, I got sort of introduced to that sort of school of hip hop, like the Soulquarians and and the Roots and that whole that whole bag of music. Um, and then a little bit later, I was introduced to jazz by being asked to be the percussionist in the high school uh, jazz big band that we had. And we went to a, a high school, uh, I guess, jazz competition. And I hadn't really properly checked out jazz then, but um, I thought I was a pretty good drummer, but Going to this national competition, I saw all of these other drummers and, and musicians more broadly who were my age, but clearly a lot better than me and a lot more sophisticated and had a lot more going on. And that's when I realized, okay, I better start, you know, checking out this jazz stuff because I do want to be like a professional musician. And it, it was pretty clear that 
these young jazz musicians were the ones who really had it going on. And um, that sort of begun my exposure into jazz. I uh, Like Miles Davis's Kind of Blue was an early one, um, as I'm sure it was for a lot of people. Uh, Art Blakey was the first real drummer that I had really, that really sort of uh, took me by the throat and, you know, blew my mind with his, you know, amazing musicianship and drive and pulse. And um, I guess, you know, gradually just sort of getting to learn all of the greats like Alvin Jones and Roy Haynes and Tony Williams and Jack Dejanet and so on and so on. Um, and I decided at, when I was about 16 that I wanted to really commit to the musical path. So I um, sort of spent the last few years of my high school preparing myself to enter into the New Zealand School of Music, which is like one of the main uh, jazz conservatories in New Zealand. And um, it all kind of sort of, you know, really started sparking off from there. I was, um, I got into the Wellington musician scene from a pretty young age and I, you know, had the great fortune of um, performing with lots of musicians who were older than me and more experienced. Some of your listeners may have heard of a band called Fat Freddy's Drop from, from Wellington who were like the sort of reggae dub kind of band, but they also infused a lot of jazz into their music and um, the musicians in that band were at all of the, the jam sessions and that kind of thing. So I got to play with those cats a lot. There was a pianist um, called Jonathan Crayford, who is a New Zealander who was living in New York, I think in the, oh, must have been in the mid-90s to mid-2000s, I think. Um, and he he was the first cat who really got me hip to, like, real kind of heavy improvisation and stuff. And for a bit of context, like, back in the day, he was working with Kurt Rosenwinkel a lot. Um, he was in a band called The Groove Collective. And he really, he was the first cat who had a bit of that New York experience and sort of learned the music on the street there. And so playing with him was like a really big education because, you know, he, he really had all of that creativity and that um, rhythmic intensity and harmonic knowledge just sort of fully mastered and um, really taught me a lot about, you know, playing jazz and, and improvising and what it is to commit to the improvisational process. And um, that, yeah, I think he was the one who really got me, who really clicked, clicked it for me that like jazz and improvised music was going to be a big part of my life. Um, and also another project that maybe some of your listeners would have heard of was a band called Electric Wire Hustle, which was definitely on that post-Dilla neo-soul kind of tip. Um, and that made some pretty good uh, pretty good waves overseas for, for me, being based in New Zealand. Like, um, we managed to tour well, the United... When you're saying overseas, do you mean more in London or do you mean more in the States? Cause... Uh, both, actually. Uh, so the UK, Europe, um, the States, Australia, Asia. Um, yeah, we pretty much toured all of the continents except for Africa and South America. So I guess most of the West and, and some of the, and some of Asia. Um, and that, that was definitely the project that I guess prior to me really jumping deep into my solo career, people would have heard of, um, you know, I guess we, we worked in the sort of same vein as, um, uh, bands like Sarah or, uh, Dame Funk, or I, I guess like, uh, how, well, I actually know of you from your second album, the 1.1. Okay, okay, cool. So, um, yeah, the 1.1 records, um, that came about, uh, I guess, we're, we're jumping ahead a bit here, but... Um, okay, yeah, go. Do you, do you. I'm sorry. Uh, 
Yeah, so the Electric Wire Hustle project did real well in terms of like, you know, getting some proper overseas experience and playing lots of the good festivals around around the world, really. And um, at the same time, I was getting curious about production and beat making and, and composition. And that led to the production of my first album, One. And that was released on BBE, which had put out um, artists like Pete Rock and DJ Spinner and Jay Diller and Mad Lib and sort of that kind of world of hip-hop, soul, jazz-ish kind of um, production. So I, I, I was fortunate enough to have a release on that label. And then I had to, I guess, eventually tour that project. And um, one, of, one of the concerts was in Los Angeles at a club called The Blue Whale. And I had the good fortune of um, being able to rope Miguel Atwood Ferguson and his string quartet into that project, as well as um, Mark DeClivelo, uh, Ben Shepard, who are bo- both of them are also Kiwi expats who are living in the States. And, um, and we happened to record the concert and just the concert happened to gel so well that I decided to put it out as a record. And that, that was 1.1, which is... Um, the album that uh, you discovered. And that came out on First Word Records, which is a UK-based label. And um, that was sort of the record that started to open me up into, I guess, the UK scene and that kind of thing. You started Um, winning, which I'm correct, which one? Was it the London Drummer of the Year or was it New Zealand Drummer of the Year that time, off that album? uh, Or am I wrong? I I was nominated for New Zealand Jazz Album of the year, okay, um, which I actually lost to my mentor Jonathan Crayford. So I'm 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 kind of I'm cool with that. You know, he deserved it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so that that album did some good things, and um, from there, like I got to tour it and stuff, and I was doing, you know, I was still doing music being based in New Zealand, but um, I guess I had hit a bit of a a bit of a glass ceiling in terms of um, not not creatively, but in terms of, I guess, career potential whilst being based in New Zealand. And that's not to that's not to rag on New Zealand at all or the scene there. But um, you know, New Zealand is only a country of five million people, and it's a very 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 long way away from the the thickest dream of activity that you get in like the states or the UK and Europe. And um, I was, I was getting kind of frustrated, but in a not so constructive way in terms of like career stuff, you know, like feeling like I was supposed to be, you know, that classic, that classic sort of psychological pitfall of like being a jazz, mission, jazz musician who was supposed to be famous, but like, you know, you'd never really quite got there. And then as opposed to doing anything about it, you just sort of, sort of well in your frustration for a while. And, um, and Wait, so your early 20s, you were feeling like that? Yeah, or maybe more mid-20s. It was sort of like, I guess, I, I, was, I, was, I had a bit of existential dread about thinking, oh, okay, this is it for me, you know, just in terms of, like, I, you know, I, I would get like a good tour, um, but, you know, coming from New Zealand, you're looking at, I guess, at least a $1,000 to $2,000 overhead just to get to wherever it is you're touring on top of all of the other costs of bringing a band over. And, um, and you know, when you're starting out, especially the fees are never like that great. So you're inevitably losing money. Okay. I got to stop know, you there. So wait, touring in New Zealand, go into that. Sure. Well, um, <laughs> well, well, as, as I was saying, like, are there a lot of on, clubs? There's no, not, 
really. I mean, there are places to play and grow your craft, but like I would say in terms of spots for jazz music or kind of improvised music or like sort of musician-driven music, for lack of a better turn of phrase, I'm sure there is one, where people are actually coming to listen to music as opposed to like have their cocktails and fancy drinks and there's just like a band in the corner being part of the decor where you can like really get into sort of developing an artistic identity. There's not that many venues available for that. And that's part, that's mostly to do with just like, again, the population. Like, so like New York City has 8 million people, I think in it. New Zealand as a country only has 5 million people. And then, you know, jazz in itself is already a fairly niche music. You know, it's hard for the, um, the uninitiated to kind of get into. So, you know, there's only going to be a small percentage of music that, uh, sorry, a small percentage of a population that's going to be interested in that music anyway. And so inevitably when you're, when you're based in a country like New Zealand, it does mean needing to travel overseas if you want to sort of build your artistic career and build an audience. Um, but obviously you're at a severe disadvantage in many ways because you're so far away from the rest of the world and the cost of just getting over um, the cost of visas and all of that. It's just, it, it is a significant hurdle for a, for a New Zealand artist to be based in New Zealand and make an international career happen. It's not right. impossible. So where do you guys but, go mainly? Australia, definitely. Do you go to Singapore or do you go like straight to London? Where do you guys tend to um, niche out to? Definitely like Australia would be the next, um, the most obvious market to kind of get to in terms of, um, you know, the rel- it's relatively easy to get to Australia. Um, Singapore and Asia, like, yes, but mostly it's, I would say most of the jazz artists from New Zealand who have toured there would have happened to have been booked at a festival, but aren't necessarily, like, it's harder to kind of get in on the club circuit in that part of the world as an international artist, unless you're, like, fairly well globally established. So from what I can see, most of the bands who are touring, um, most of the international acts who get to tour, like, say, Japan or Singapore or, I guess, China to an extent, would be the already fairly well-known American or European acts who have already sort of made their name there. And from and from that, the promoters in that part of the world are more excited to sort of take on, uh, bring over an act like you know, like Robert Glasper would very comfortably and easily be able to tour Asia and have a good go of it, it despite how far away he is in the States compared to how, how compared to how far away New Zealand is. But um, just, just off of the back of like profile. And there would be, you know, several other jazz musicians who are even, who don't even have as big a profile as Glasper, but have a bit more of a reputation, I guess, in the States in particular, and maybe Europe who are just at a bit, in a better position in terms of career profile to be able to get into those gigs. So it kind of, with those kinds of territories, it's harder to break the back of them if you're starting from the bottom than it is to sort of make your name in the States and Europe. And then from there, you're in a position where like those territories where there is a bit less um, of a, no, I mean, there, there is like lots of good jazz coming out of Asia, but like there is, I'd probably fair to say it's less prevalent than the jazz that's coming out of the States, obviously, or even Europe um, to a, to an extent as well. So it's so you're in a better position if you kind of make your career in the States or Europe and then uh, head over to the 
I guess, less prevalent territories, but they're still important ones and you can still make some good money as a performing artist in that part of the world. But it's, um, yeah, it's hard. It's harder if you're coming from New Zealand, basically. Okay, fair. Um, <laughs> and, but yeah, and I guess after a while, I kind of realised that, like, there's probably, there's like a handful of jazz festivals that you can play in New Zealand, but that it's not, like it's it's pretty difficult if you're trying to really focus on your craft to sustain a career as a performing artist, unless you're doing like, you know, the pop gig and the um, I guess like there's lots of really great musicians who are teaching as well, and um, and there's nothing nothing against that, but in terms of like if you're really wanting to like be a like lead as a um, improvising musician for lack of a better word it's just the market's just so small and you're so far away that for me um it made a lot of sense after a while to to move overseas and um i was tossing up between new york and london um new york was definitely the first option in terms of it you know obviously it's the mecca for this kind of music you know um there's so many of the world's greatest musicians all happen to live there or tour there or, you know, develop their projects there. And so it's like, you know, it's that classic cliche of if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere, you know. And um, and the it, the visa process was a little prohibitive. Um, like the, to get like an O1 visa, which is like the primary artist visa, there's a lot of legal loopholes you have to jump through. And on top of that, um, you can't actually do any other work outside of the thing that you've applied for your visa for. So hypothetically, if I was starting out trying to book gigs and, you know, the gigs were not coming through that well and I had to take up a day job, like, you know, just pulling pints at the pub or at a cafe or whatever, I would be in breach of my visa if I if I did that. So that's a pretty, it's a big hurdle, especially in a city like New York where the living costs are so expensive. And What year you were know, you thinking of coming here? This would have been 2019. 2019, okay. Yeah, and um, and I was looking into the UK, and um, as as a New Zealander, the visa process is a little easier to get in. And on top of that, I had the record label First Word, who put out the um, 1.1 and a Love Required albums. They're based out in London. Um, I had a booking agent that was based in London, and. I knew a few. Mu- I had a few musician friends who were in London as well, so I would be starting from. I, you know, I'd, I'd still be the new kid coming in, but I wasn't starting at total zero. Like I had a little bit of a network already established. So it, London made a lot more sense um, on that score. And on top of that, there was like a pretty, like over the last five to seven-ish years or so, there's been like a a pretty well-documented rise of um, really interesting artists coming out of London who are playing jazz and improvised music, but... Um, still coming out of the tra- the jazz tradition, but like sort of doing their own thing with it. Yes. Like we're, we're um, yeah, so we're like, sort of like perhaps the modern New York jazz musician draws from like the, the Jay Diller kind of rhythmic uh, schematic or the sort of R&B or gospel kind of rhythmic kind of thing. Um, in London, there were cats who had that, but they, they were also drawing from, you know, grime and drill music and broken beat. And um, it was like, it was exciting kind of creative place in many ways. And um, 
where where perhaps like and and I'm I'm perhaps generalizing, but I, I guess this is from the outside looking in, like the the swing tradition in New York is super deep. Like, you know, like there have been musicians in that city for a century who have been really honing in on the feeling of swing. And even if it's not literally ding, 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 rhythmically, it could be like straight eights or it could be a hip hop thing. But like that, that sort of rhythmic code is like really deeply entrenched in so much of the music that comes out of New York. And in, I agree. You, That's one thing yeah. I do like about your music. It's more modern. It's more up to date, I should say. Uh-huh. Because, like you said, people don't really dance to swing anymore. Yeah. But so. but even, even if they don't dance to swing, like, there still needs to be a dance in there. Even if it's not, like, something... Like, even if it's people sort of sitting down and sort of stroking their chins. Like, rhythmically even if it's not like a dancey music, um, you still want to feel that pulse and that sort of rhythmic interplay and that rhythmic intensity, even if it's even if it's a slow ballad in like 13-8 or whatever, you know, something which is, a, 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 which on its surface is a little um, more, uh, for lack of a better word, sort of intellectual. Like you still, like that rhythmic pulse is super important. And all of the great, like, jazz, you know, like, jazz musicians have that. Like, um, like, say, just to name someone off the top of my head, Mark Turner, who's an incredible, incredible, incredible musician and has obviously got an incredible, incredibly well-thought-out harmonic and melodic concept, which, to the average listener, could be a little bit daunting, perhaps, in terms of, like, it's not, it's not, like, easy music to kind of understand if you're not um, initiated into the world of jazz. But even despite all of that um, intellectual, melodic and harmonic knowledge that he has, there's still like good rhythm in there. And it's still like, to me at least, intuitively feels good. And that comes out of, I think, that sort of tradition of swing, where even if you're not literally playing the swing rhythm, that sort of commitment to um, rhythmic integrity is is there yeah, throughout. But that's when you lose a lot more people. If yeah. you get what I mean. And I agree yeah. with you on that, but you don't think that's also an issue? Um the fact that you need to understand music at a certain level to enjoy it that deep th- versus a pop song. Yeah. yeah, I think um I think there's room in the musical ecosystem for all of it. I think um like, like if, if, if we imagine, like, say, a musical spectrum of, like, say, for example, like, I guess, like, someone playing poppy poppity pop pop music, total lowest common denominator, playing, like, you know, deliberately kind of following the trends and explicitly trying to make a hit, right? You know, and there, there are plenty of musicians who do that and do it well, I would say, and, and do it with a a level of craft, as well as ones who are a bit, you know, like of a better word, a bit shit. (laughs) Um, And like, and you have that on one side of the spectrum and on the other, you would, you you perhaps have like someone who is like totally committed to like advancing the, uh, being on the absolute knife edge of creativity and 
sort of really pushing their art to the absolute limit, regardless of the audience to a point where it's like perhaps relatively unlistenable and you will never have more than like five people in a room who seriously like well, that's understand. The thing. I would with. love for jazz to be able to fill up arenas like the O2 arena. Yeah, like Madison Square Garden, but yeah. Well, I think, um, like, I, I mean, Kamasi Washington, I think perhaps has had come close to that um, in terms of like, like his music is definitely jazz, and there's you know there's definitely some real shit going on there in terms of his musicianship and his um, musical intensity. But um, you know, he was able to play Glastonbury Festival, and the music was able to resonate. Um, or there's a musician like Shabaka Hutchings who's able to play some of the major festivals in the UK. And his music definitely sounds pretty avant-garde in a lot of ways, but it's, it's got a rhythmic intensity that resonates with people. And it's it's almost, it's, it's jazz, but it's almost like African punk in a lot of ways, like in terms of like just the the force of it and like the sort of intensity of it. But it's something that, you know, grabs a lot of people. And like when you're in the presence of it, it's, it's pretty undeniable and and you don't have to be a musician and know all of the musical theory to kind of, to get that. And at the same time, like, uh, um, like any of the amazing musicians who would play at say Smalls in New York and perhaps not play at a venue much bigger than that. Um, like, I think, I think that stuff's amazing and beautiful and it, if, and if like, I think there there is an important place for um, I, I think there is a necessity for there to be spaces which are less driven by commercial imperatives and allow for okay, but what do you consider commercial jazz there? Sorry, what would you consider commercial jazz? Um, okay on 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 the really abs I mean, I'm, it's 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 a bit of a pot shot, but like, to, Kenny G is the most obvious commercial jazz artist of the last thirty years, and I I do not enjoy his music, and maybe it's hard to call him. Some people would say he's not jazz; he's something else. But you know, for lack of a better word, the market thinks of him as a jazz artist. But um, he's he's on one spectrum, on on a perhaps more. I guess more musically sound spectrum. Um, a musician like Kamasi, who we just talked about. I guess Robert Glasper. He definitely has like a pretty solid commercial appeal, um, as well as having like an undeniable sort of technique on his instrument and musicianship. Um, I guess those those artists like Kamasi and Robert Glasper. I guess over the last ten years or so, they would be to, to me at least, and I'm sure there's plenty of others, but they're the first ones that come to mind where I, when I think of like jazz musicians who have uh, are committed to the craft but have also put it together in a way which just resonates with people um and and that's a beautiful thing and and like the artist playing at smalls to like 50 people playing relatively weird stuff but like really believes in whatever it is that they're doing i think that's a beautiful thing as well and i think there's room for both and and obviously like robert glasper is going to have like a more high-profile career and more of an audience recognition than, say, Ari Honig, for example, this, like just to name one musician who's incredible, who perhaps 
is harder for the uninitiated to kind of get with. But I think like it's uninitiated. all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that part. No, yeah, keep going. But, <laughs> yeah, but I think I think there's a place there's a place for all of it. And like for me as a musician, I draw from, I you know I, I draw from all of it. I don't I don't think there needs to be a um, too much of a a boundary between genres or between um, I guess creative processes or between uh, what's considered um, like quote unquote real jazz and what's considered crossover or commercial. I think I think like it's it's up to the artist at the end of the day to make those decisions for themselves, right? And if like I I I I've never had this conversation with them, but I assume Robert Glass but at some point was deliberately like, I love hip hop as much as I'm formally trained in jazz and love jazz. And I want to find a way to merge these worlds. And I assume perhaps as well, he maybe got a little bit tired of playing jazz clubs all the time and wanted to expand his music and have his music find a younger audience. And um, I, I, I'm sure there's some deliberate yeah, intent. No, he said that. I saw him perform at Let Us See a few mo- weeks ago. I think it was in October. And he pretty much said that. And I think that he grew a lot because of doing that. Because his first, I think it was his first album that he did with Blue Note. Right. It was, it was straight like ahead. A, it did yeah, nothing as well as the Black Music Experiment. If I'm getting the title wrong, I know. but Black Radio? Yeah, Black Radio. Thank you. Wow. I know there's a third out volume coming out in a few weeks, but yeah, mm-hmm. that did well. And it commercialized Genius. It has a whole bunch of R&B singers on top of it, so it broadens his horizons. Mm-hmm. But, oh yeah, sorry. Continue. I ruined your chain of thought, yeah. did I? Uh, no, no, no. It's cool. It's cool. Um, yeah, I, I guess I guess the over, my, my main point is that, like, it's up to the artist at the end of the day to decide what it is um, he or she wants to be doing with their art and their career and where they want it to go. Um, and this, I believe, I strongly believe that there is a place in the ecosystem for everyone. Um, perhaps there, I mean, an artist would have to, like, if, if you know that you're committing 100% to pure art and creativity and zero and paying zero attention to commercial considerations, then it would be wise to acknowledge that you may need to do other things for money. You know, that's, and that that's perfectly fine. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, but, but there are definitely like, and I only say that because it's, it can be easy to have a bit of a hang up about feeling like you've worked super hard on your craft and you're making super sophisticated music and getting frustrated that, you're not able to get an audience for it and you're not making enough money and you have to take a job. You know, you don't want to go into your life with that level of frustration or resentment. So, you know, if... Yeah, but if, when I say that to some people, yeah, they don't take it well. Right. Well, I, I guess they, I guess everyone has to sort of make their choice, right? And um, obviously I, I want their... T- of course, I want there to be more money in music in general, but in particular, more money in sort of the, for lack of a better word, the avant-garde and, and you know, like more money for artists who are really trying to push the needle and try, trying to like be on that knife's edge of 
what music can be. I, you know, that would be that would be lovely. And and I guess different. Like I know in New Zealand there is some amount of like um, funding for projects like that. Like obviously then like there's not as much as like the commercial. There's still the commercial artists are going to make more money, but you know you can get funding for certain projects where it's more about creative considerations rather than commercial considerations and, and the funding is assessed on that basis. So, you know, there, there's places for it. But I guess, like, ultimately, um, yeah, I guess an artist has to has to decide. And I, I, and I, I would be... I wouldn't want to make too much of a value judgment on one way being the right way or the wrong way. Um, I mean, or even you got to be able to take care sorry. of yourself. That's the way I see it. Yeah, yeah, and I agree. I know people who are next level elitists, love them, but they won't take certain gigs. Right. Uh, we'll because, continue. Yeah, but um, well, 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 tell me about that. Like, what? What's the um? Like, like if I mean, a, I, if if I were to say, come play at my wedding. I know people who would turn that down because they think that's, you know, beneath them. I know people right. who would say like, well, I need, in your case, as a percussionist drummer, I need a drummer for a hip hop album. And you're just right. going to play straight the same thing. I don't want you to improvise. I don't want you to give me any fills. Just keep it straight. Right. There are people who would hate that. The, right. the bloody passion. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's what I mean. Mm. Well, um, yeah, I guess I, Again, it's like that. I guess that's like the the musician's choice at the end of the day. Like, if and 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 to be fair, like probably what inevitably happens is the musicians who want those gigs end up getting those gigs, and the musicians who don't want those gigs either like maybe they do them for a while and resent them and want to do something else or. After a while, they just don't get called for those gigs so much because you know the whoever the band leaders are kind of know that prob- probably that cat who plays all of the crazy avant garde avant garde stuff perhaps doesn't want to do it, and and I think that's that's okay. I think, and I mean it's a sh- I mean in some ways it's a shame, like because I mean I personally believe that even the most dull corporate wedding covers band top 40 gig can teach you something. You know, there's always some good to be taken out of a gig like that. Um, Whether it's like, you know, realizing how to make people dance, you know, if you're a drummer, like being able to play like a solid pocket and see how that rhythm connects with people dancing, you know, that's an important lesson to learn. And um, and even if you go on to play like crazy metric modulation kind of avant-garde chin strokey free jazz stuff, like knowing how to make people dance is important, and it will inform you even when you're playing the crazy avant-garde stuff. You know, it sort of it all connects up somewhere in there. Um, so yeah, in a sense, it's a shame that like there would be musicians who would turn their nose up at that kind of gig. But yeah, um, I know I'm seeing it different also because at the same time they came to do a certain thing and they believe that's the right path. But I believe when you venture out to different stuff, 
you might be able to pick up a bigger audience. They might like your drumming that much that they buy your album, which could do the more sales or, you know, stuff like that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's, I guess that's just a lesson we all learn one way or another, you know? And I mean, there are plenty of musicians who have taken the, the more staunch route or route, I guess an American would say, the more staunch route when it comes to their musical journey and, and uh, you know, maybe selective with what, what it is they do and don't do. And I guess I would say more power to them. And if you're in a position where you can financially sustain that, then great. And, and maybe that means having another job and then the music that you play is stuff that just genuinely moves you as a person and you get to focus on that as your creative outlet and not necessarily create the pressure for it being your financial, you know, ways and means. I guess, I guess that's where, that's where bitterness can kind of happen, where you make a decision to be the super creative forward thinking progressive artist and, you know, and, and it can be harder to find an audience and then you're bitter about that. You don't want that. Um, you want music to be something that's, um, a genuine joy and pleasure and is fulfilling in and of itself. And you don't have to feel, and I, I, I say this from personal experience, you don't have to feel like you're less than just because you need like a different job to get by in order to pay the bills, you know. There's even, like there is a place for your art, regardless of whether you're, getting a stadium full of audience or whether you're just getting five people in a dingy club that seem to not give a shit about you. There is a place for you. And um, you just got to make the choices that are true to you and ultimately life will sort of present those choices to you and you just make those choices and keep keep it moving forward. Okay, yeah. here's a question for you. Be honest with me on this, okay? Okay. So you're doing that for 10 years and nothing's growing off it. Would you <laughs> conform or would you quit? Um, I would, I wouldn't quit. I definitely wouldn't quit. And I've had phases where I thought about quitting, you know, it's uh, uh, like, to, to be totally honest with you, I had like moments where, I mean, as I alluded to earlier, where I thought, I guess being based in New Zealand and having a fairly, you know, as I was saying, like a fairly small country, let alone a fairly small sort of potential audience that's even interested in the kind of music that I make, I was sort of like, oh, maybe this is the end of the road and I just take a job and I don't let music be the the be-all and end-all of my life, you know, like, but then... Um, I, I guess I personally like just eventually discovered like through actually just sort of putting music, not totally putting music to the side, but, you know, just doing other work that was outside, like totally outside of the music thing. I guess after a while, like my spirit just couldn't deny that I wanted to be a musician. And, um, and that's, that was why I made the choice to eventually move overseas was just like to actually, it was either now or never and to like 
give it a proper go or just decide to just leave it as a thing I do every now and then. And so what would you have done if it didn't work out? I mean, if you quit? Um, I would have been working a job at, um, I guess, it was, I, I was working at a job which was, I guess, a sales role for an outdoor advertising company. So I guess like, um, I'm trying to think, I can't remember the names of the New York, but like, like say for example, like the posters or the billboards that you see like all around New York City, um, I was working a job where basically a com- like a company or a promoter would want to advertise their event or their brand, and I, was, I would be one of the people that would be dealing with those clients and being like, okay, cool, we're going to put your advertisement in this place, this place, and this place, and it's going to cost this much, and you know, negotiate your budget and blah, 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 and sort of create an advertising campaign for them. So I probably would have been working in that space in a sort of, I guess, relatively speaking, a fairly corporate kind of advertising role, which is totally, I mean, there was definitely some skills from being a musician which crossed over to to that, but it was definitely outside of, relatively outside of the music industry. And I prob- and I was relatively good at it and it earned like good money and I wasn't unhappy doing it, but just the calling kind of came where music was just, it, it, I just could not deny that I wanted to be a musician and I wanted to sort of push my own creativity and, and that kind of thing. But I, I guess to answer your question though, like if it's, if you're going at it for 10 years and it feels like you're not getting anywhere in terms of like career profile, um, don't quit, but it's okay to reevaluate what, success means to you. And for some people, success is about, you know, being financially sustainable off of your creative passion. Like, and that, that, like undeniably, that's successful. Like most musicians in the world don't get to that point, right? Like, you know, most musicians, like they might try it for, a, you know, like even to be like a, like a average to, pretty shitty jazz musician, you have to put in a lot of work just to play a rhythm changes kind of badly, let alone play one well, let alone have your own artistic voice, let alone have like a career, like a viable career, which is able to sort of sustain yourself and a family, you know, like there's, it, it takes a lot to even get to that point. And so undeniably, if you can pay your bills doing the music that you love playing, then that's, I would say is successful. But for some other people, success isn't to do with financial viability. It's to do with like their own creative and personal growth. And it's sort of music for music's sake. And if like, if you know in your heart of hearts that you love the music that you're making and it's true to you, and regardless of how many people are showing up, like you feel it and, and, and it's undeniable to you, then great. And that's wonderful. And in the meantime, do whatever you need to do with your life to survive and cover the bases and take care of yourself and your loved ones, whether that's financially or otherwise, you know, and whether that's taking some job or, or whatever, you know, you just, you, you, you make your choice and be, it's, it's okay either way. And, but I, I would say if, if you really believe in it, I hope you don't quit because um, 
there's a place for you in this ecosystem, even if it doesn't feel like some big grand scale type prolific career or whatever. You know, I'm sure there's been plenty of like, like, I mean, well, to give like, I mean, to give you an extreme example, even Sonny Rollins had to take a day job in part of his career. There was a lot of them had to. Yes. A lot of those legends in those eras. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, are you like, you know, if Sonny Rollins can take a day job for part of his career when it's not financially totally like making bank, then it's okay for you to take a day job if you need to. But like, it's it's totally cool. Like the fact that Sonny Rollins had to take a day job for a little bit does not diminish the career of Sonny Rollins or like the value of the output that he's given to the world, you know. And so if you really believe in it and you know it's for you, then just keep going and just make whatever life choices you need to do to survive. And um, it'll work out one way or the other, regardless of whether it's like big grand career, high high profile kind of artistic thing, or whether, you know, you're just doing it because you enjoy it and you can share it with your friends and maybe not that many people be on that, but you know, it's, it's satisfying for you. You know, it's all, it's all valid, I think. Okay. Well, yeah. under question I need to ask. So you come to New York and unfortunately we didn't get to meet up. A whole bunch of <laughs> variables and situations came about. But Omicron and all of that. Yeah. What is your take on the New York scene versus the London scene versus the New Zealand scene? Um, I think what New York is undeniably when we're talking about jazz and improvised music, New York is undeniably the mecca, right? Like Every every person who aspires to be a jazz musician or an improvising musician should spend some time in New York. You should like go and check out all of the clubs and know what it is to have like to know what it is to feel that level of musical intensity that's coming from just so many countlessly talented cats that live in New York. You know, beyond like you have all of the famous names who who were there and, you know, I could go on and on about them, but there's plenty of like amazing musicians who who aren't necessarily famous, but they're still just so incredible and they still have like something to offer and something that's like, there's, there's, there's something in the water in New York or there's something about that sort of New York intensity and the pace of life in New York that I think feeds an interesting thing to the musical output of that city. You know, like you've got the whole world in that city and you've got like this pretty compressed, quite fast paced way of life, which, which has its problems, you know, like it can be stressful and um, can, you know, there's definitely plenty of people who have gotten burnt out living in New York. But, um, but from that comes like, I guess an intensity in the music where people are like, they're not, they're not fucking around. They're like, they're here to fucking play and like really, give it their all and it, it's important regardless of whether you live there permanently or not like if you want to be playing this music you got to spend some time in New York and I think it's also true that like for the musicians if, if you can make it in New York your ability to have access to the rest of the world as a jazz musician is far greater than if you make it in any other city in the world I think like the musicians who are like prominent names in New York City are the 
more often than not the ones who are headlining the European festivals and getting to tour the Asian festivals and even like in Australia and New Zealand, and which is definitely less common for the London-based jazz musicians and the European-based jazz musicians and definitely less common for the New Zealand-based jazz musicians. It's just, um, you know, it's, it will always be like the mecca of, of this music and, and it, so it will always hold like a pretty high esteem in that regard. I think what I think, the, what I've noticed is like some particular differences between London and New York. So um, earlier I was alluding to the swing pulse being like super integral in, in New York's musical output, even if it's not overtly swingy jazz music. I think in a similar way, London, because London is also a very global city, but um, you have a high amount, like a very big Caribbean population here and a lot of, a very big African, like African diaspora, like from Africa, as opposed to like the sort of multiple generations of um, people who were unfortunately enslaved in the States however many hundreds of years ago and have sort of become the African-American community. Like you have like a an African community which has like familial roots going back to Nigeria or Congo or um, South Africa or, you know, like, if, like all of, there's so much of Africa in London. And, um, and then you have like the European, you know, there's like a, a lot of different European cultures in London as well. And the way, the melting pot that that creates is kind of different in the sense of like where New York has the swing pulse, I think, um, London has like the sort of Afrobeat kind of that kind of rhythm is in the music a lot more, whether that's sort of manifesting itself as like broken beat or house music or um, Afrobeat or dance hall. And the way that that kind of club music has influenced the jazz musicians, I think that's a big part of what the London sound is, is like, I guess, coming out of the African thing, which is sort of, and the Caribbean thing, which evolved into the house and drum and bass and garage and grime and dubstep and two-step thing. That's like a super prominent kind of London club culture sound. And then from there, how the jazz musicians have from this part of the world have kind of grown up with that and that rhythmic kind of schematic has sort of entered their music in a way which is similar to how so many of like the New York based or American jazz musicians grew up on like the Dilla thing and how that rhythmic kind of vibe is so prominent in like a lot of the sort of New York's kind of Can you explain music- the Dilla to the person who's not fully sure? Sorry, say again? Explain Dilla. Okay, so for those of you who don't know, Jay Dilla was a producer who passed away, I believe, in 2006 from Detroit. Um, and he was like a, a hip-hop producer who had produced for acts like Slum Village, where he first kind of came out. Um, one of Some of his most prominent work has been with Common, who's a rapper who I'm sure most people will know. Um, Buster Rhymes, Erica Badu, uh, D'Angelo, um, and the list could go on and on of like sort of the famous soul and hip hop artists who Dilla 
produced for. And rhythmically, he was one of, he was probably the most prominent producer to take what was a fairly quantized music in hip hop and sort of deliberately loosen it up and make it feel a bit wonky, but at the same time kind of cohesive and connected in a way which sort of changed the way that hip hop was felt in a lot of ways. It loosened it. I guess you would say it loosened it up. So you'd go from like to like where there's like a bit more of like a lilt or how I like to think of it as like, as opposed to a tennis ball rolling down a hill, it's like an egg shaped ball rolling down a hill where the, the like momentum. Yeah, no, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the momentum's a little uh, wonky, but but it's cohesive still and together. But And I guess that rhythmic schematic was like Robert. So if you listen to Robert Glasper's music, like a lot of, the, the rhythm and the aesthetic that he's playing when he's referencing hip-hop comes from Jay Diller's thing. Um, and, and there's countless other musicians who have taken that kind of rhythmic feel on board and to greater or lesser extent have been influenced by it. I think there's definitely like, like a pre-Diller jazz slash hip-hop drummer and a post-Diller jazz slash hip-hop drummer. And like the thing that Dilla did was just like loosen it up and kind of create a, a wonkiness and a lilt to it, which no one had really done so prevalently before. And um, and similarly, I would argue like the drum and bass or grime or broken beat kind of rhythmic schematics have had a similar kind of type of influence on the jazz that's coming out of this scene. So if you hear of like albums, like say the Yusuf Kamal album, Black Focus, which came out, I guess that would have been five or six years ago now. Um, that definitely was like, in many ways, like it was definitely a jazz record in many ways, but it came, it had a different kind of really UK oriented rhythmic schematic that came from UK club music. Um, Shabaka Hutchings, he's definitely someone who's well influenced by grime and his sort of rhythmic his rhythmic approach, um, like it's very very diverse, of course, but like the way he the way he can flow sometimes is quite reminiscent of the way like grime MCs kind of flow and the way that those rappers kind of flow on different kinds of rhythms, which is kind of a UK thing. And not to say it doesn't happen in America, but there's definitely a UK flavor to it. Um, oh, yeah, question and, on that too, I just got to ask: Do you think jazz is moving more towards that direction, um, or towards a hip hop? I, I think I think that's it's been pretty well done by now. I mean, there's there's definitely more that there's prop. I'm sure there's more that can be done. But I think, like, well, I mean, we always keep coming back to Robert Glasper here. But like the work that he did over the last, I guess, maybe it's like 15 years now. It makes me feel old even saying that. But like. Um, there's that, that's pretty prevalent, like, I guess in the last, yeah, I, I'd say over the last 15 years, probably, like, at least one of the main evolutions of jazz music has been the influence of hip-hop and how that, how, how, whether it's, like, 
musicians sort of playing in a way which is reminiscent of a sample or whether it's like the kind of rhythmic feels that are behind it and the kind of the, you know, the ways that the drummers in particular play. Like, I think there's definitely a lot of hip hop in like contemporary jazz drumming. That's pretty, that's pretty clear. And so I think that's a pretty well-established thing now. Um, it would be interesting to see where it goes in the future. And in some ways, maybe it's a little overdone and, you know, and, and I'm, I'm guilty of that too. You know, like I've, I've definitely been very strongly influenced by Chris Dave in particular, um, as well as like Jay Diller and Madlib and Pete Rock and uh, Questlove and these hip hop producers and hip hop drummers. And it's, it's definitely a part of like my music and the way I play, even if not all of my music is overtly kind of Dilla-ish sounding or hip hop-ish sounding, but like it's, it's in there for sure. And I think, I think, um, I think a lot of that comes down to like the musicians who are coming up now who are in their twenties and thirties and maybe forties to an extent, they grew up with hip hop as a major part of their childhood. And, um, and that was what, even if they were like, focusing on being jazz musicians, like when you'd go to the high school dance or whatever, like it's hip hop that's being played. Or if you go out to the clubs where all the girls are at, it's, it's hip hop that's being played. Or, and so of course, like you're going to be influenced by that one way or the other. And I think it's, it's important, you know, it's important to make music that's of your place and time, you know, um, as much as I, as I think like the traditionalists are an important part of the ecosystem, there's only, so much of, I guess, there's so much like bebop or hardbop that can be made in an authentic way before it starts feeling like you're playing a cliche and it's important for every artist to, I mean, yeah, they can, every artist can make their own choices in terms, to, in terms of what kind of music they want to play, of course. And, and if you want to play music that sounds of the 40s, 50s and 60s sort of bebop and hard bop and post bop era, then that's awesome and totally like we need we need those cats in the ecosystem too. But um, if you're making music that's of your time and place, then definitely it's hard to deny that hip hop's going to be a big part of that. Like it's probably the most prevalent uh, danceable music that's come out in the last thirty years or so, and it's probably the biggest musical movement of the last 30 years. And it would be silly to deny that and to deny its potential to influence your own music in beautiful and interesting ways, even if you are trying to be a jazz musician, you know? So yeah, I think hip hop's definitely a big part of jazz music and it's here to stay. And it's it's just another layer of foundation for future generations to kind of build upon. And um, yeah, yeah, I okay. guess that's my answer. So where will you think jazz will be in 10 years? Um, it's a good question. Uh, Bigger, smaller? I think, well, well, firstly, I suppose, and, and this is sort of a different conversation, but um, we need to, in order to answer that question, we probably need to define what is and is not jazz, right? Um, some folks... I guess, for lack of a better word, like you have like the Winton Marsalis school of thought, which is like 
it very literally don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Like, you know, there's like, I remember um, having, like the, the Jazz at Lincoln Centre Orchestra came to New Zealand a few years ago and some of the musicians were giving some workshops, which I was lucky, lucky to attend. And I had a conversation with, um, with one of the members of the band who I won't name, not, not, to, not because it's hating on him, but just I won't name him here. But um, like we were talking about Dilla, I mean, sorry, about Robert Glasper. And he, he was saying like Robert Glasper isn't jazz. He is jazz influenced hip hop or jazz influenced R&B, but you would put him in the hip hop or R&B category and not the jazz category because the rhythmic thing isn't ding, 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 kind of, it isn't specifically coming out of the swing rhythmic aesthetic. And for him, like that, the swing rhythm was the defining thing of the genre. And I disagreed. Like, I, I, for me, I feel having improvisation at the core of the music is probably more important to defining jazz than whether you're specifically playing ding, 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 ding kind of swing rhythmic phrases. Um, but he raised, a, I think, a good point in that, like, jazz wasn't the first music in the world to have improvisation in it. Like, even though, like, maybe it was the most prevalent recorded music to imp- to have improvisation as a feature of the genre, um, you know, there's, there's been plenty of, like, European folk music where improvisation was a prominent thing or plenty of, like, mm-hmm. West African Bach music. has w- improvisation in it. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. Bach improvisation, but because it wasn't recorded, we got the notated version of Bach and then everyone played the notated versions. And so you don't think of it as improvisation because of just that we didn't have the technology at the time to capture that. But, you know, improvisation definitely existed well before there was anything that we would call jazz today. So if you're defining, if you're using improvisation as the defining metric of what qualifies something as jazz or not, then that's probably insufficient. And, and it was a good point, I thought. So No, I but, see where but, Winston's coming from on that. I do. Yeah. Yeah. And but, but I guess I guess where people kind of find Winton's thing problematic is the, the implication of a of a value judgment on that, you know, of it's we're not qualifying this as jazz. And it kind of feels like he's saying, therefore it is less than what I'm trying to play, which is, I guess, coming out of the Duke Ellington thing or the Louis Armstrong thing, or you know, you know, the it kind it can kind of feel like he's saying it's not jazz, therefore it's less valid. Which maybe the, I don't know if that's necessarily what he's trying to say, but it can feel like that. Um, and so I guess to answer, and if if that's your qualifying metric of where jazz is going in the next ten years then you'd probably have to say probably not that far because it's kind of hard to evolve the music if if that rhythmic core is the only thing that can sort of quantify something as jazz or not. But I guess for me, um, I've always seen, I've definitely been on the perspective of like 
for lack of a better word, to sort of almost to disregard genre when I'm creating and be more about like, what is it that moves me musically when I play? And jazz is a big part of that, no doubt. And like lots of my music is, but if it's, if it's anything, it's in the jazz realm. But like, I love like Afrobeat and high life and hip hop and house music and drum and bass. And I, and I love to play that stuff as a drummer and I love to produce that stuff as a beat maker. And um, just as much as I love to improvise and swing and, and I feel like there's a lot more that all of these different genres have in common than what separates them. I think like, no, to I, me... I get what you're going from on that. So let me yeah. try to make it even simpler. Do you think there will be more straight ahead jazz clubs open? Or do you think more will shut down? Um, if, I, I think if you are a club promoter or a venue promoter, trying to promote exclusively straight ahead jazz, probably, I won't say your days are numbered, but I think they're, as the music evolves and the musicians evolve and the diversity of influences only increases, I think probably if you're trying to stick to straight ahead jazz, it's, it, it's, it's, it's definitely limiting yourself as a venue to do that. But there'll be pla- I'm sure there are places which can do that. Like there'll definitely be clubs where they've established themselves as being like proper straight ahead jazz venues and can maintain, have, have built an audience that's here for that kind of music and can maintain themselves through time. But I think, what I think probably will happen and, and, and is already happening really with the music is like, like information, the access to musical information is only getting easier and easier. Like with, with the internet, uh, with streaming, for lack of a better word, like we all have access to like all of the world's musical, recorded musical output at the touch of a button. Um, and of, of, there's plenty of discourse on why that's problematic, especially financially for recorded music. And, you know, there's plenty of people who have spoken more on that than, than I have and, and have spoken more eloquently on that than I have. But, you know, we can acknowledge that there is a downside. But the upside is like this amazing access to information where I can, as, a, as an artist trying to create music and, and learning, and, and especially for younger artists coming up now who have grown up with access to streaming, like, you know, you have all of the world's music to, to listen to in an instant. And inevitably that's going to have some kind of effect on the music that gets made. And um, I think probably mostly positive, a positive effect, I think. I think that, like, and I remember talking about this with my drum teacher when I was in my teenage years, like, he was like, man, you, you are so lucky to grow up in the age of YouTube where in your formative years, you can tune in to whatever random jazz club in New York from Wellington, New Zealand, and hear the innovations that are getting made in that club pretty much the next day as soon as someone films it and posts it, right? And, and that 
undeniably influenced me as a musician in a way that a musician who was 20, 30 years older than me wouldn't have had the opportunity to do. He would have had to have, especially living in New Zealand, you would have had to have waited for whatever jazz release to eventually get posted as a CD to the record store. And if you're lucky, you're getting all the cutting edge stuff, but often you'd probably just be getting the relatively mainstream stuff that's probably going to sell. And so the access to the access to music that I had was far greater than what my teacher had. And that I think influenced my growth and development in a way which meant that me living in New Zealand was less of a barrier to musical knowledge than it would have been for a musician coming out of New Zealand 20 years ago. And I think the same thing applies to musicians around the world now, like their access to information is, is going to be that much, that much faster, that much broader, and will be influencing them in ways that we, I guess, we'll just have to wait and find out to hear. But I think there will always be a place for jazz and improvised music. Um, there will always be a place for swing and for, you know, there's, there's nothing as beautiful as like an undeniably well-played swing rhythm and, you know, jazz standard. That's a beautiful thing that I think is timeless in its way. But um, I think probably what we'll see is those quote-unquote straight-ahead jazz clubs just opening up to music which is improviser-driven and musician-driven, but not necessarily 100% coming out of the jazz tradition and jazz canon that I guess people of my generation or your generation were taught growing up, going into jazz music schools. And I think this, I think it's just going to be a broader world of music to draw from. And I think the clubs will inevitably evolve with that. Um, yeah, I guess hopefully that answers your question. No, no, that's your what you, answer. What I think? Yeah. I think Shredhead will slowly die out bit by bit. Okay. Just like disco. Just like a lot of other stuff in the past that is slowly, slowly gone. Now, all the disco bands out there, yes. Yeah. Uh, Chromio is one of them. Not Chromio. Oh, shoot. <sighs> I'm forgetting the name of it. But yeah, there are groups out there that do have disco based out there that do on tour. But I mean, don't get me wrong. It doesn't make me happy. I just don't see them filling up like that in New York anymore. Right. Well, um. I would say to that, like, perhaps you're right, but I guess on the flip side, we would have, like, okay, to me... Mm -hmm. Do you? I think the, like, some people would say the jazz tradition is swing and learning the standards and that kind of thing. But I guess for me, and I'm not the only person to think this, to me, the tradition of jazz is innovation, right? Like when Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker were making their music at that time in the, I guess, 40s and 50s, they were bucking the trends of the day. I mean, they were definitely come, they definitely knew Louis Armstrong's music and, and had learnt that stuff and, and knew like the jazz big band music and had probably played in those bands. But the music that they were trying to make was something new and fresh and was breaking tradition. And I, I don't know this for a fact, but I bet a lot of the, the guys who are running 
the old school big bands back in the day when they heard that music, they were like, oh man, this shit is trash. It's like, you know, that ain't real jazz. That's just like noise or whatever. And then eventually after a while, like they, they commit to their thing and they fight for it and they stand by it and they develop and, and, and other people start to hear it and really like dig it and learn from it and get their minds blown by what they're doing. And it becomes like an important part of the tradition. And we look back on it now and it's like, yeah, Charlie Parker's ways of improvising is like so foundational to everything that we know about jazz since. But I bet at that time he was searching for that new, that new sound and that new thing. Okay. Um, but, but what I mean by that is, no, it's going to be necessary to learn that stuff. Like I'm never going to tell anyone not to learn any theory, any counterpoint, anything like that. It's right. going to be stuff that improve your skill as a musician. Right. But what I'm saying is just the art of it in general is not going to be mainstream. It's not even going to be that much underground, I think. Now, hopefully right. I'm wrong. Yeah, I, well, I, th I think, I mean, I guess it's like, if the tradition is innovation, then we don't necessarily need to limit our view of what jazz could be to what has come before. So you're probably right that as, I mean, well, to be fair, like sort of 300 to 400 beat per minute, like raging rhythm changes bebop probably isn't really getting played that much anymore compared to when Max Roach was out on these streets, like blazing it up, playing that style of music, right? Like that's pro that's something you hear less and less as time goes on. And to, to an extent, that's a natural part of the artistic evolution and process over the years. And that would, no genre would be, um, no, no, you know, there, there, no genre will be immune to that. Like the kind of hip hop that Big Daddy Kane made, like hip hop doesn't really sound like that anymore in 2020. And, and as, as you were saying, years ago, it's completely different sound now. And the disco bands that were operating now, like, like those bands probably don't really exist so much. And the like, probably house music has been like the natural evolution of disco and maybe more of the music, which is, which disco bands, oh, what am I trying to say here? Disco bands and the music they made had a function in the musical ecosystem that house DJs and producers probably have now, right? And, and the house DJs that are like prominent now, maybe 20 years down the line, won't be prominent anymore. And that's just part of, that's just part of how music and art in general evolves, you know, like people make music of their time and make the innovations of their time and slowly but surely those innovations and what kind of feels like rule breaking eventually kind of becomes codified. And over time, people, as people build on those innovations, like when you look back 5, 10, 15, 20 years, the thing that seemed revolutionary is now just like the common DNA of whatever the music is now, you know. Like when Robert Glasper first started merging the Dilla thing with the jazz thing, that was like totally revolutionary and mind-breaking and really changed the game. But like 15 years 
now, 15 years on, that's just kind of commonplace, right? Yeah. Um, okay. And or like, I'm sure back when Jaco Pistorius first came out, like he totally revolutionized how the bass was played and totally changed the game. And we listen to him now and it still sounds incredible and we can still recognize that, but like lots of the way that Jaco plays has been kind of codified and is in many ways kind of commonplace with electric jazz bass players and and so on and so on. Like, you know, and Dizzy and uh, Max Roach and Thelonious Monk, at the time, they all sounded incredible and mind-blowing and still are amazing musicians that you need to check out now. But what they've done is become part of the code of what's come on since then. And I don't think, like, you're probably right that I don't think there will be that much quote-unquote straight-ahead jazz left, but I don't know if there should be either. I mean, there's a place for the tradition and it's important that the tradition is upheld and we need folks like the uh, Lincoln City, I'm sorry, Lincoln City, Jazz at Lincoln City Orchestra to kind of keep that thing alive. It's important that it's kept alive. But at the same time, there has to be room for innovation to happen and um, hopefully... uh, there is room for that to happen and whether that's happening in a straight ahead jazz club or whether it's happening in the electronic music world or whatever it could be, like all the more power to them, you know, like music has no boundaries and nor should it. And um, I hope that uh, just we just keep fostering a world where innovation is um, valued and accepted and, um, and yeah. I agree on that. And that's one thing I must say that I do love about your music. You're heavy on the drum machine. And your technique, I must say, is on point, which is one reason why me as a percussionist, being biased here, am really drawn to it and pay really attention to that. But please tell people about this album. I mean, your new album. You just recorded the third one you told me. Uh, just give us a bit about that. Please tell us where to find it because we need to wrap this one up because this is going on longer than expected. Okay. <laughs> oh, sorry to keep blabbing. No, 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 it's okay. <laughs> cool. Um, so I like since lockdown. Um, of course there was as there would have been for all of the musicians and I guess everyone in general this sort of existential kind of crisis of like holy shit, what is it that we're doing with our lives? And for me, what I found made sense, especially with like all of my gigs just sort of falling away, was um, using this time to be, like to compose as much music as I could and um, record as much music as I could. And this, eventually what came to be was this project called Crisis and Opportunity, which is, which will be a five album series of works that um, I'm using to deliberately kind of hone in on my different facets of my sound. So like, the first album which came out, Crisis and Opportunity Volume 1, London, was very much a tribute to London and was an attempt to kind of make a London jazz record, but inevitably, in many ways, it sounded like a, almost like a modern hard bop record in the way that the horn arrangements kind of came together. Like, it definitely, I ended up kind of falling back on a lot of my Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers influence, even if I'm sort of using some different grooves and kind of different kind of rhythmic schematics, like a lot of that's in there. And and I was trying to write something in tribute to London and using London-based cats, but, um, you know, you, you can take you can take the boy out of the jazz world, but you can't take the jazz out of the boy, that's for sure. And um, 
that ended up being like a, an album which is like, it's done really well for me and has, um, you know, helped me to find a whole bunch of new audiences and it's been great. And then um, Crisis and Opportunity Volume 2, which came out in November 2021, that's a bit more on the intersection of like jazz, live improvisation and uh, I guess beat making and producing. And basically I use that record as an opportunity to do some just basic live open groove jam sessions with um, some great musician friends of mine. And from there sort of find the best couple of bars or moments and chop them up into something which sounds a little more cohesive and feels a little bit like a beat tape in a way that like the classic sort of hip hop beat tapes that like producers like Jay Diller or Pete Rock or um, Geology have put out over the years. And I was really very much inspired by those hip hop beat tapes as much as I was by jazz improvising and composition. And um, volume three, four, and five will be coming out over the next few years. And um, I'm really excited about them. They're all sort of like tapping into different aspects of my musicianship and my sound. And um, hopefully I can, hopefully it's something that places me on the map as a, a diverse and, and eclectic musician who's um, got many uh, strings to his bow, as they say. And um yeah, I'm just looking forward to sharing this music with you and um, sharing it with the world and, and uh, hopefully um, being able to present something that people find beautiful and interesting and um, is of value. And um, yeah, yeah, that's it. Crisis and opportunity. Keep an ear out. It's going to be um, it's going to be a good thing, no doubt. Okay. Can you tell people where to find you, your social media, et cetera? Yes. Uh, so... Uh, you would find me, I guess the one I'm using the most is Instagram these days, and that's at M-Y-E-L-E-M-A-N-Z-A-N-Z-A, at Myele Manzanza. Um, and if you look if you look that up on Facebook and Twitter, you'll find you'll find me there too. Um, if you want to join my mailing list, you can head to MyEllieManzanza.com and there'll be a little pop-up thing where you can get access to the mailing list. We'll be updated on all of the the good bits and bobs that are coming out and the tours and shows that'll be uh, coming up in 2022 and beyond. And um, yeah, if you, if, if you, if you like me, don't be afraid to say so. Feel free to reach out. I always appreciate the kind words and um, yeah, much love to you. Thank you so much for um, giving me the time of day to um, have a chat and talk about music and my music and, what's going on in the world. And, you know, I appreciate you. Leander, oh, it's really. great, man. It's just, this is one of them I actually got, I wish I did get to do in person. Just stuff didn't work out for us when you yeah. were over here. And yeah. yeah, you have nice insight of stuff. <laughs> Thanks, man. Well, I mean, and I, I will say this, like, I don't take it, I mean, I guess part of it's like coming from New Zealand and like having spent so much of my time there, but like, I'm really grateful that people from like, you know, you, you live in New York. Um, I live in London and I'm from New Zealand and somehow my music has made its way to your ears and to, to, to enough of a degree where you felt intrigued enough to hit me up for a chat for your podcast. And I don't take that for granted, you know, it's a pretty special thing. It's, it's, it's kind of magical in a way how music can connect like-minded people. And um, the fact that you, you know, felt enough, you know, we're interested enough in my music to like give it the time of day and want to have a chat. Like, I really take that for granted. I, I really value that, and yeah. I don't take it for granted. Oh, seriously, you know? thank you, man. But that is true. Your music did catch my ear like that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, everyone, Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good day. All right. Ciao, ciao. That's that on jazz. 
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>